Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell, down in Moab, Utah. Tiffany is away this week, but I am joined by my friend and writer, Robert Fulgham. Hello. Hello. So I was telling you that since we've been hanging around for the last couple of days, informally, I didn't write out a proper bio for you. Would you like to tell everyone who you are? Well, I'm a retired accountant for a dog food company who also writes for a living. You told me I could make stuff up, so... Yeah. I, and that, what I've just told you, is that I'm a person who has serious work with a light heart. Yes, that's so true. So I think the way that most people, the regulars anyway, would know you from this show is that we talk about one of your books a lot, which is the book Third Wish. Tiffany and I have talked a lot about our influences, artistic influences that have encouraged our travels abroad and your book, Third Wish, which is a five volume adventure, is one of the things that kind of spurred me on in life. You're also known for writing everything I need to know I learned in kindergarten as well as it was on fire as I laid down on it. Uh, Lots of other books. How many books now? Uh, 21. And then there are three stage presentations, a musical and I'm writing mostly for publication in Europe now, not in the States, because I find American publishing very awkward and difficult and contentious and cheap because of Amazon. So So it's been a number of years since you wrote Third Wish, but since it's the one we talk about the most, how would you describe that book? Well, I I would call it an autobiography, Hmm. because I set out when, when I wanted to write a novel. Up until then, I'd just written short stories and essays and whatnot. And I thought, I want to write a novel about an adventure where I've done everything in there. I've eaten the meals, I've been on that train, I've been on that shore, I've had to know those people. Then, uh, ten years after I finished it, I want to want to reread it again. I want it to be one of the books that I want. And so for me, rereading it ten years later, and twenty years later now, it's a nostalgia experience because I've been to that, I sat on that beach and ate that food with that person. So. So where are some of the places it takes place for people who haven't read it? Well, France, Greece, Crete, Japan, it's, it's kind of all over the world. It has characters that were based on real people, but then I've extrapolated a lot or combined a lot. But there's far more nonfiction. You know, it's amusing to me that it's, it's called a, fic- a book, a work of fiction. There's more nonfiction than there is fiction in it. And if you wanted to go to that place, as some people have, the book was published in the Czech Republic, about the time that the Czechs could get free to come out and do what they wanted to do when the Velvet Revolution happened. So one of the volumes is set in Crete, and um, a lot of the places are very real. So people use it as a guidebook to Crete. And the rug merchant, Kostas Leopakis, who's a real person, kept saying, oh, these Czechs keep showing up and saying, it's me famous, I am now famous. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I like that, that they went to check out and see and then found out that it was real. It was real, based on real history, real people, real events. I think of myself primarily as a storyteller. And a storyteller knows that there are some things you do tell and some things you don't. Like, what do you know about Little Red Riding Hood? You don't know how exactly old she was, whether she was pubescent or whether she had her period or where her grandmother was living all alone out in the woods. It's a whole lot of stuff that's told you. It's just left to you because the important things, what the wolf's teeth look like, you know, that becomes important things. So if you're a storyteller, then you need to know what's really important and then hand it over to the reader. And, uh, and then the reader, if the story's really good, will add themselves to it. And when, if they tell somebody else, they've added their own embellishment to it. Mm-hmm. 
it's not re- painted red anymore. Now it's gold lame. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you remember when it came out, when I would have gotten my hands on it? Uh, 1920. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> I don't know. No. Oh, yeah, I'm much older. 2019. You know. Oh, it must have been before that. I don't know. Okay, yeah. It was quite a while. Yeah. It would have been, I'm guessing, probably around 2009-ish, 2008-ish. So when I got my hands on it, I was deep in a career at NPR, working in daily radio. I loved my job and my life was fine. And I read your book and I remember reading it in the backyard of the house I was living in and thinking, I need to have a bigger life than what I have going right now. And just even that thought and being on this journey with the three main characters going all over the world, I think spurred the openness that made me, when I had the chance to move abroad, go and look for people who were going to open those doors for me. They're out there. All you have to do is not be a tourist. One of the things I do when I go to a country, for example, you know how I dress here in Utah. Describe. Well, casual. Utah, Moab casual. When I go to the Czech Republic, I'm very aware of what a sta- Czech standard male dress is. Because I don't want to stick out. I don't want people to say, oh, there's another goddamn American tourist. I want people not to notice me. And so I see what they wear. I wouldn't wear Carhartt jeans in, in Prague, though a lot of tourists will dress just like they do at home. I, I think of this protective coloration. You want to be part of what's there rather than someone who's visiting there to look and observe and you know, take the trip. When I spent time in tango school in uh, Buenos Aires, uh, I dressed like I was a, a little... I even put oil on my hair because all the men there, you know, put oil on their hair. So I'm not trying to be phony. I'm just saying I don't want to be noticed to stick out and be excluded because I am one of them, not, not part of the locals. So. It's interesting, though. One thing that we've talked about on the show some is this idea of if you live somewhere else, if you were to move away from your home country and move it to another country, is that an opportunity to reinvent yourself? Can you become a new person? Well, that's why a lot of people travel. They don't want to have to be the person they are at home. And one of the characters in the, in the my new trilogy, uh, she travels in, on trains and talks to interesting people. And she always tries to be someone who's interesting, but not who she really is. Well, all the world's a stage. So what is, what is new? We always go wherever we go. You uh, present yourself differently when you go in to talk about people at KUOW in Seattle than you do sitting here talking to me in Utah. Life is a theater, and you're on stage. And if you don't understand that, you're going to have a really hard time because sometimes you don't have a speaking part. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. But some of your characters also run up against the wall of that they want to be something different, and then they can't be. They, They are themselves. Well, you're always a mix of your aspirations and your reality, and whatever that happens to be. And uh, if you don't think about that, think through that, and don't realize that when you walk out the door and go into town or in any situation involving other people, you are now playing a role on that stage. And it doesn't mean you're being phony, it's just a realization they see you in that context. They haven't been there in the morning when you got up in bed and went to the bathroom. That doesn't mean it's you know dishonest, it's just we see only facets of other people, and then you have to think, oh, they only see facets of us. This is the reality of being alive in a community. So is there any way to be more authentically yourself? I have no idea what that <laughs> phrase means. I think it is so overused, worn out, and meaningless. How can I be anything other than myself? But as famous poet Walt Whitman said, 
Do I contradict myself? I am large. I contain multitudes. I have many facets to my life. That doesn't mean I'm what my mother saw and thought of me and what I saw and thought of her were not the same thing that her neighbors felt and saw. This is real, you know. What is your objective notion about your authentic self? Can you be inauthentically somebody else? No. You're stuck with being inauthentically you. It's just what's that like in this context? What's the role? Well, I think my life is like this. When, when I'm in the Czech Republic, for example, where I've been going for 30 years and doing a lot of touring around and speaking, when I'm on stage talking to a big audience, I have a, a role responsibility to them and to myself, and it's an on-stage reality. And when you get off stage, then you're still just an ordinary person who gets in a taxi, goes to home, to the hotel, and goes to bed. Are you, which one are you? Well, you're both. People who want your signature, God knows why, I've never understood that. Nevertheless, okay, I'll give them my signature. Uh, if that pleases them, I'll sign any part of their body as I have. That's what the job is if you are an author in the public and you expose yourself. Otherwise, be a hermit and stay away. Well, that's an interesting question, too, is especially because of the kindergarten book, you became a very famous person. What was that like for you? Well, I, was, I thought I was the same person. I lived in the same small houseboat in Seattle, and I drove the same old beat-up car and had the same friends, and I wasn't very interested in fame. I didn't, I didn't write a book and then try to sell it and then live up to the fame that it might bring me. They came to me. Someone picked up some of my writing and wanted to know if I had more, and that's how the whole thing got going. So I didn't think any differently about myself. When I began to realize that all of a sudden, because of the newspaper articles and the fame and all that sort of stuff, that other people looked at me in a different way, that's when I began to not like being famous. And now I live way off the grid. I'm very hard to find or get in touch with. It's not that I don't like people. It's I don't enjoy the fame. I don't want that many people involved in my life. I like to write. I don't like to be famous. What was the perception that changed like, and how they were looking at you? Well, it's, it's how we always look at people we envy, rich and famous, so they must have the gold card and they must have the plane and the, you know, the, all the things that go with that, which I did not. And when they found out that I was still living in a, a houseboat of 900 square feet, people were sort of, my publicist for Random House was kind of embarrassed by that. And why don't you have a big house? Why don't you have a Mercedes? Why don't you have, you know, why? If you have what you want, and if all you think of being really well-to-do is to be able to pay off your Visa and MasterCard, then the rest of it is gravy, and how much gravy do you need? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. Well, I can attest that you were very hard to find, because after I read Third Wish, I went on the quest to try to meet you, which, you know, I don't go on a quest to meet authors all that much. I meet a lot of authors just in the way that my job is, but I don't go on the quest to meet them. What did you think of me when I finally found you? Well, you were one of many people who were wanting to interview me or be on their radio program or whatnot. And I had, because I lived in Seattle and you were on air in Seattle, I knew your name and knew your personality to some degree. So uh, there was no no big deal. I mean, every newspaper reporter and every television, once you have sold a million books and you're number one on the New York Times bestseller, people go crazy. And, and so I thought, here's another you know, nice person who's crazy. You know. And? And? Was I? Uh, no, it's just same. You're a nice person who's crazy. So it hasn't, <laughs> it hasn't changed. Just I know how crazy you are. Yeah, you know more intimately now that you've spent a lot of time with me. So going back, in a lot of your writing, I read your, in the last couple of days, I read your new trilogy. And Third Wish is also a five-volume set. And in both of those books, it looks a lot on expats 
and international travel. And you said it's autobiographical, but why why the international travel aspect? Why is that so important versus, you know, just autobiographical of you sitting around with the people in Moab you know? Well, it's fundamental to the whole writing process. You want to be successful and satisfy yourself, write about what you know. Well, I've traveled all over the world. I've lived in seven different countries for a length of period of time. I know that what it's like. I speak two or three languages or can get along in a couple of others. That's my world. So I write out of that world. It's no big deal to me. And all the characters who are in my new trilogy, just called the Mender of Destinies trilogy, which may someday be in English, I don't know, they're all members of the human race in the world. And one of the things I like noticing that no matter where I live or what group of people I hang with, Human nature is pretty fundamentally, especially in the Western world, you know, if I live in the middle of Africa in a jungle, that's something else. But even then, I don't know. What I'm struck by is how one the human race really is. Envy, greed, affection, love, uh, altruism, all that, are not that much different from one country to the other. And we don't even dress differently anymore. You can go in any major city in Europe and find the same clothes as you can find in Denver and Salt Lake and... And we we are become this in one world culture. That's what happens with change. And well, you and I talk about this. I I can hold this little funny looking device in my hand and know whatever's going on in the world, anytime, anywhere, weather. You want to know what the weather is in Zambia? Boom, you just punch it up. That may be information overload. I don't know. Mm -hmm. So I'm very careful about what I want to know about the news of the day beyond what it looks like from my front porch. Because the news of the day around your front porch would be what? Well, it's uh, the, uh, the nature. I don't plant anything. I don't have a garden. That's just whatever's out there. But I see new growth. I'm looking out where I had a fire about a month ago, and now there's all this green coming along, and there are flowers I didn't know were out there. And so it's you, know, you look like, oh, Mother Nature's still carrying the ball here. Mm-hmm. I don't think much about climate change because where I live, in uh, the Canyonlands area of the United States, where I am living right now, where you and I are sitting and talking, has been underwater four or five times, completely underwater. And then all this dirt and stuff that's been piled up over time, that's come later and then come up and gone down and whatnot. Climate change? Give me a break. Well, I mean, just in the last month, you've had a flash flood and a massive fire that ripped right past your house. Yeah, yeah. And who who knows? Glaciers next week, uh, rains of frogs, uh, (laughs) who knows? Turn of the dinosaurs, yeah. I mean, dinosaurs are just very small. They're called lizards. <laughs> One of the things I love that you wrote, too, because, I mean, if people could see where we're sitting right now, in every direction that we look, you're surrounded by black trees. Yeah, and smoke. From California, yeah. imported smoke. Smoke, and, and firefighters had to come up here and save your house. And the whole time I've been here, there's been workmen repairing stuff that got burned. But you wrote about this experience, and... You wrote about it in not a negative way, and I feel like most people would write about your land being destroyed in a very different way than you did. So how did you? How do you think about it? Well, I have an attitude that says every situation contains an opportunity, and it's an attitude. If you look at the world in terms of problems and not problems, then that's a black and white. I look at the world in terms of situations and circumstances. So well, the circumstance here is a lot of trees burned down. The other circumstances, my house and studio did not. So you balance that out, and Mother Nature will take care of the because fire has been through this valley many times, and we think, well, now we got to worry about invasive species. I say, no, the only real problem with invasive species is us. We are the invasive species, and we've done more harm to this valley than any tumble we will ever do. 
So it's it's a matter of how you you may things are as you will chose to look at them. I'm not a naive person. I know that there are pain and sorrow in the world, but as a famous uh, friend once said to me, you, know, you break your neck, you become a quadriplegic, you've got a real problem. Everything else is mostly inconvenience. And what you do with inconvenience is how your quality of life is. If you wake up every day, you think, oh, God, or if you get a pick with a day, well, I'm still alive. Take the sheet off my face and go. It's just a matter of attitude, I think. So now I'm, no, the truth is that when all of the rehab, rehabilitation comes along, my house and studio will be in better shape than it was before the fire. If you say that to people, they say, well, my God, it almost burned down. I said, no, it didn't burn down. Can you get that straight in your mind? It isn't what it almost, a comet almost didn't hit my house. But you also told me that if it had burned down, even that wouldn't have been the worst thing in the world. Well, I think about episodes in my life where I've put a lot of creative energy into something, buying a house and restoring it or a boat or something like that. And at some point, that project is finished. And you can't do anymore your creative energy so that my house and studio were done. And if it had burned down, then this would be the opportunity for something new, something creative, something inventive. I may have the most amazing yurt you've ever seen. I don't know. In fact, I even thought, well, suppose it did burn down, and I would get on with it. And I see, see that a lot of times. Like you get the car you thought you always wanted. Well, then that's it. Now forget about the car thing. So I tend to not get upset by what happens. I think, well, what's the opportunity in this? Well, some people would describe that as being optimistic. Is that how you would describe it? Uh, I'm realistic. It's, you know, it's both. I, I, it's not that I don't see people suffer and die or that things don't burn down or la 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 la. But the question is, what do you do with that? What's your attitude about the situation? And where do you go from there? If it's over, if you say, well, my house burned down, my life is over, I'll go out and shoot myself. Well, okay, but that's not where my head is. And some people think I'm naive. Other people don't want to see the world in opportunities. They want to tell, you know, talk about, oh, me, woe, woe is me, what happened to me? And that's their life, not mine. Yeah. A quick aside to let you know that you could be a sponsor of this show. If you have a business or an idea, a product or a book or anything you think that an engaged, educated audience of international listeners would love, send us a note and get the conversation going. This is a podcast where we explore big ideas with world-class guests. Send us a note to get the conversation going. Write to bittersweetlifepodcast at gmail.com. That's bittersweetlifepodcast at gmail.com. Or visit the Sponsor Us page at thebittersweetlife.net. We look forward to hearing from you. And now back to my conversation with author Robert Fulgham, recorded when I visited him recently in Moab, Utah. He's a writer of essays and stories, fiction and nonfiction, and the five-volume set Third Wish, the book that inspired me to discover what's next. Here we go. I feel like a lot of your writing is inviting people to see the world. I don't know. I, I, it's hard for me to even describe because I've read so much of it, but for shorthand, uh, more of a sense of wonder. Does that feel true to you? Well, wonder in the sense of isn't this amazing and wonder and what the hell is going on, you know, both of the sense of wonder. But one of the things you can notice in all my writing is that it's not prescriptive. I am not in the guru business. I never tell anybody, all you have to do is this and you will be happy ever after. All I do is say, I've noticed this, and this is what passing on to you if you notice this, but I leave it with the reader or with the person I'm talking to. 
I don't believe in the guru rule. I don't want to do that thing. I couldn't. I was a Unitarian minister for a while, and it's very easy to slip into that. Or it's a teacher, same thing. He's got it, you don't have it, he'll give it to you, and you'll be happy ever after. No, that's not me. So as I said to you recently, I, if you read all the writings I've done in my essays and, and my essay books and stories, nothing ever starts with I. And it's always saying, if you noticed, or I saw these people, or here's, a, you know, that's what storytellers do. The storyteller doesn't say, I was there with Little Red Riding Hood last week when we went to visit her grandmother. No, 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 she's talking about, this, you know, the, <laughs> the story of that story is wolves ought to stay away from little girls and their grandmothers. That's for sure, because it did not end up well. <laughs> If you're a wolf, read that very carefully. (laughs) How would you say that you approach day-to-day when you're here alone? Well, my week has a sort of ritual shape to it. When I live alone, as I've said to you before, you're free to eat when you're hungry and sleep when you're sleepy and whatnot. But in fact, things fall into a routine. So Mondays, when most things are quiet, I tend to do business stuff and take care of all the emails and stuff like that. On the day before, Sunday, I always take, I call it a Sabbath, but it's not based on any religion. I just take a day completely off, and I read poetry, I listen to music, I go for walks, I don't pick up my cell phone, I don't look at the computer. Clean slate. Sunday is a day to clean the air. That's very deliberate on my part. I'm free to do that, and nobody's in charge, and nobody has to do it with me, so. But Sunday sets up the busy stuff of Monday I don't want to do. And then the week flows on from there, depending a lot on weather, depending on circumstances around me, whether people are visiting or what I've got 11 workmen crawling all over the house like ants. But you go with this. If they weren't crawling all over my house like ants, then my house wouldn't get repaired. So you go with that. And a lot of them are very interesting people. So it's one day, well, you'll see right above where I work, there's a photograph of the universe. And then right along tied it, there's a strip that says, Un jour à la fois, one day at a time. I live my life that way a lot. And then I have a list. There's two lists. One thing's if I'm going to do that I need to do, and one thing's I don't want to do, that if I write them down on this list, then that's taken care of. I don't have to think about them anymore, and I don't have to do them. I've written them down. I notice that that has to be done, but it's, you know, it's not on fire, so... <laughs> so don't worry about it, yeah. yeah. So with the workmen walking around... And just from my observations of knowing you from my visit here now and from knowing you in Seattle is that you will walk up to people and engage them in conversation. And your characters do, too. They they walk up to people. They say, what are you doing? They bring them into their lives. Why do you do that? Well, I'm curious, basically curious. And I know from now from a long life experience that everybody's got a story. And some of the people that don't, you don't seem to think, you know, what are they about? If you ask them to tell you what they're doing or ask them anything personal or not, they will be glad to talk to you. People would like to tell their story. And so um, I'd say half of the workmen who've been here have got amazing stories, and I've written about them. And so here's fodder for the mill. I told you about this one guy who came to fix the Internet, big six-foot-two, very burly guy, a little scary-looking, intimidating. I said, what are you going to have to do? He said, get up on the roof. I said, well, I'll get a ladder. He said, no, no, no. I just retired from 15 years in the 10th Mountain Division of the U.S. Army working with the SEAL teams in Afghanistan. I don't need a ladder. And he went to the back lowest part of the roof and jumped up on the roof, and he was up there and did it and came down. 
And so I said to him, would you have dinner with me and tell me stories? And he, he was glad to do it because he says, nobody wants to know my stories. They don't want to think about Afghanistan. I want it to go away. So I, I keep finding that there are people that I would not pay any attention to that if you do and treat them like equals, like people who have a story, then the world's material is just infinitely rich. Is there a story that he told you over dinner that was memorable? Oh, yeah. Well, it's his, his story, so I wouldn't go into him. I'm just saying that here's a guy who was taught to kill with his bare hands or to kill with anything around that could harm somebody else. And he was pointing out in my kitchen, he said, you know, this is a deadly weapon, that's a deadly weapon. Crack this wine bottle over and you can kill people with it. I, thought, I never thought about that. <laughs> I've become very dangerous. <laughs> yeah, I wish I would. Even more so. <laughs> wish I would have known. Uh, so since you've talked to so many people, you've lived in so many places, is there someone that you walked up to randomly, say like that, out of curiosity, that stands out in your mind as somebody particularly unforgettable? Whoa, yeah, many. And one of the, I think I t we talked about this earlier in the week, if you make your living as a lawyer, let's say, or a doctor or a teacher, you have access to backstage in people's lives because they, if you're a doctor, for example, they need to know things about you that you wouldn't tell anybody else. It either makes you very cynical and thinks people are you know, in a negative way or you think people need people. So if you make your living as I have as a minister, you have backstage access. If you make your living as a teacher, students will talk to you in a way which you would never talk to their parents. Or if you're a writer, you have this carte blanche, and you have this because of what you do for a living. You can walk up to people and say, I you know, don't be intrusive and I don't want to be troublesome to you, but I'm a writer and I am very interested in, in what you're doing interests me and would you talk to me about repairing an elevator or something as I've done this. And people are really glad that nobody's ever said, you know, drop dead or walk off. People appreciate your interest in them. If it's sincere, and mine is, I'm a very, very curious person. There are so many, well, a lot of these people in my book, but there are so many people who first get my interest and then I build on them as a storyteller so they might not even recognize themselves, but the root thing was some truth about their personality and their very being that drew me to them. And I showed that picture of that very large tattooed woman that ran out of a shop in Prague and threw her arms around me because she read my books. And I would have never approached her, but you know, if someone barges into your door like that, they will tell me about your life. You're six foot two. You're blonde. You're covered with tattoos and piercings. You probably have a story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So, what is a player and what is not a player? Player are people who have a sense of creative imagination and a light heart. You can make players on very different levels. For example, if you're in a grocery store and by accident, as I have done this, you push off somebody else's shopping cart and they're not freaked out or call the manager or come up and belligerent, they come up and say, you know, that's very interesting what you're, you know, you're going to pay for my groceries or whatever. Now you've got a player, someone who's not intimidated by the way life goes and has a sense of humor. I've had some wonderful encounters with that sort of thing. The one that my most favorite recent one was I was traveling on a train from Prague to Olomouc in the Czech Republic, and there was this little girl, and she came up to me and said, you know, what do you do? Who are you? I've seen your picture in the metro and in the paper. And I said, and she just had this sparkly look about her, like, I'm up for anything. So I said to her very quietly, 
I'm a re- professional bank robber. Don't tell anybody. And her response is to say, I was sure she was a player with, oh, I've never met a professional bank robber before. That we're in, you know. Uh-huh. And there's a whole bunch of stories that go with that. But I look for people who have that, oh, really, sort of. And you can get in trouble. I was on an airplane. I've written about this in several of my books, going to uh, Japan. And there was a guy on that plane. And so he said to me, Bill, what do you do? And I said, uh, I'm a brain surgeon. He said, wow, so am I. And he was. <laughs> <laughs> now you're in trouble. So now you get in trouble. <laughs> That's when, and then I explained to him I was a player, and he laughed and laughed. He thought it was funny, thank God. But sometimes you can you know, overplay your hand, so I haven't been a brain surgeon for a long time. <laughs> but I look for people who have that sense of mischief. And it's not wickedness, it's just mischief of... Well, you and I have been involved in situations where we've played roles and you know, consciously played roles in the theater just because it's fun and it's harmless. It's not that you're not telling lies in order to steal money or something. Uh, it's just a, a lighthearted sense of mischief. So it's been a, a pretty trying year for many people with the pandemic and all the lockdowns and the fear and danger. How are you going to approach coming out of this period of time? It's been a great period of time for me. I mean, think about it. If you write for a living and you've got a major novel project that you want to get done and you want people to leave you alone and in solitude is what really works and nobody's going to come near you because you might be diseased. And I've told you know people for fun, I said, actually, I don't have the COVID, but I probably got rabies because I feel like biting anybody that comes within arm's reach of me. But I've had a wonderful year of writing. Nobody, I live 25 miles from town. And all the neighbors who do live out here are scared to death of the, because they're all old and feeble and stuff like that. Well, not really, but they think they are. And so I've had a very tranquil year. And then I began to get bored, and all of a sudden nature tries to burn down the valley. And now I've got all this you know, stuff. So there's all this excitement that's going on. And uh, the truth is, if someone said, how did your last year go? I had a really good, good year. I couldn't travel, but I'm tired of traveling. So I can't complain. Let's talk about that idea of your neighbors thinking that they're old and feeble. And, you know, you're an older man yourself, but you don't think of yourself that way. So what do you think the difference is? Well, again, it's personal attitude about yourself. I have neighbors who now have lived here for 25 years, and they decided when they were 70 that they were now into old age, both of them perfectly healthy. And so in order to be close to medical care, and we'll be able to walk to the grocery store and all those things you do when you, you know, be old and feeble. They moved back to Ohio to live in a suburb from here. And uh, they had decided to be old and that they should need to plan for their old age. And I suppose that'll happen to me someday, but I don't think old or, or act old or dress old. or you know, I can't deny the fact that parts of my body at least are 85 years old, but all of them still work. I'm lucky to be healthy. So it's a, it's a matter of, it's always a matter of attitude. Things are as you choose to think about them. That doesn't mean that self-deception is a good idea. You can convince yourself you don't need a vaccination, which is not my point of view. But most, mostly you can decide how you want to feel about something that isn't going to affect that something, but it's going to affect how you feel about it. So I don't pay any attention to numbers. I hate it when people want to celebrate my birthday. I say, hey, I, couldn't, I could care less about my birthday. I, I, haven't, I had a good year give that a number or celebrate that. Uh, so I try to celebrate birthdays and not on the birthday. I was thinking about you, here's a present. Uh, well, you've got some things that I've given you that 
-hmm. It wasn't any occasion. It just said it's an affirmation of our relationship. Uh, and I do that with all the time with people. We get stuck with dates. The 10-year anniversary of whatever. What the hell does 10 years make? You know, how about the 11th and a half year of something? Because now we're thinking, of, I don't know. So sometimes I think the world that I live in and the people in are absolutely crazed and half mad. And I think, yeah, isn't that exciting? Because they're not going to be dull. <laughs> Once everything settles down. Uh, when is that going to happen? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, so this may be the new world. But it, uh, will you be traveling again when you feel like it's time or safe to do so? Well, yes and no. I'm traveling in my mind all the time. I mean, if you look at the pile of books I've got, you know, there are all kinds of history and adventure and whatnot. And then because of the YouTube, I take adventures in other countries. So in my virtual reality... And I actually got as far as Grand Junction for cigars once in a while, so that's traveling in my mind. It's out of the reality you're in. You don't have to go far. You could go down, spend two nights in Bluff, and all of a sudden it's a different world, smells, people, whatnot. You don't have to go far to change your environment. But I have friends in uh, in Europe, and I have a house in Crete, and I have a new buck that'll come out in the Prague in next fall, so I'll be on the road again. It's nice not... It's nice to have an excuse to say, I can't come. I get invited to speak at international events, and I say, no, I can't. And it's nice to, I don't have to make up an excuse. I don't have to say, I have rabies. You wouldn't really want me to come. Yes, I've heard that from a lot of people uh, who have really enjoyed being able to say no. It's a relief. And it's curious to talk to people who hated going into the office every day, and all of a sudden now they couldn't go into the office, they could work from home. Well, they thought staying home would be fine, but they've got three cats and three dogs, a cat, a husband underfoot, and so forth. They can't wait to get back to the office. So, you know, there's always this slush in our lives. It's always better somewhere, some other time. No, you're there wherever you are. Yeah, and that kind of brings it back around to that idea of where is home? Here, me. I'm at home in my own skin. There's no place in the world. I've never, unlike a lot of people, I've never lived in the same town with the same people and have a great attachment to a happy family. So I've had to find myself comfortable, which is what it means being at home, and make friends wherever I've gone. And so once you know you can do that, then there are lots of places where I feel at home because I'm familiar with the environment, the language, the people. That's why I don't like to go for a week to Cancun or something like that. I want to go live wherever I'm going to be at least a month, and preferably three months. And then once I'm there three months, I can feel, if I can go out in the morning, know where I'm going to get my morning coffee, they call me by name when I go in, I can get the local paper, sit down on a bench, and feel very comfortable, then that's, that's all that counts. Mm-hmm. Okay, if one final question. It's not even a question. It's a storytelling request. So when I was a little kid, my favorite fairy tale, for whatever reason, was Cinderella. And you told me the other day a fine live modification of Cinderella. I was wondering if you'd tell that story. Well, it's one of my favorite stories. In one of my early books, I was telling about my being a Unitarian minister, and I had a little girl, and I was spending the time with the children in the church school. And I said... Uh, the, fro- the frogs and the, uh, I forget, people will be dividing them up. And then she says to me, where do the mermaids stand? And I said, there are no mer- mermaids in this story. And she says, oh, yes, I am one. And said it with this earnestness of, well, I would know what to do about the mermaids. So I said, the mermaids stand here by the king of the sea and watch everybody else do what they do. <laughs> and so that was the root of the second story, which is uh, Norman the Barking Dancing Pig. 
and it's in, in a couple of my books. I've told it more than once. It's a school teacher who was noted for getting kids to do theater. And she had boxes around the room with all sorts of costumes and, and no problem getting the kids to do theater at all. Not with an audience. So the, I think the state, Washington State PTA, asked her if she would come with her class and put on a performance. So she didn't tell them. She said to them, here are these bunch of grown-ups want to see what we do, and so what story shall we tell? And they decided on Cinderella. And so very quickly, there were the obvious parts. And everybody got a part, and she said, get your costumes, and they were on and right. And there's one kid left over, Norman, who's very sort of different. He's always on the edge and thinking. Norman thinks. And so she said to Norman, uh, what part do you want in the play of Cinderella? And he says, I'm going to be the pig. And she said, there's no pig in the story of Cinderella. And he said, with great dignity, there is now. Mm-hmm. And that story goes on because he ended up being the star of the performance because he went on stage and everywhere Cinderella was, he was there. He was Cinderella's personal pig in a pig costume his mother made. And didn't say a word, didn't do, you know, just looked at her with such earnestness that people began to think, maybe this story's not going to work out very well, or this is a deeper thing than we thought. I mean, he added gravity to this thing. So when Cinderella, finally the prince came on, him with the shoe fetishes, put the shoes on, they rode off to be happy, merry, merry after ever. He jumped up and down and danced around the stage, barking like a dog. And the teacher said, now, Norman, you know, I appreciate your enthusiasm. This is all looking very well. Finally, you find your part. But by and large, pigs don't dance and bark. And he said, this one does. <laughs> and now I'm going to get teary because the real kicker in this is that when that performance happened and the, all the cast, including Norman, got their standing ovation, the teacher peeked out from behind the stage and she got a standing ovation because... What the teachers recognized was that the real story was about transformation and about encouragement. And because she allowed him to be Norman the Dancing Pig, she understood profoundly the meaning of being a teacher. And uh, as you can hear the tone of my voice, that was I I bawled my eyes out, as most of the audience did, because they got it. It wasn't about Norman or Cinderella. It was about the capacity to transform and encourage other people. Hmm. So that's one of my favorite stories. I have a little pig on my my (laughs) desk that reminds me of Norman. And uh, people, they, I always think of myself when someone says, well, that's not the case. Is it? Well, there's, it is now. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. And, and I mean, I think of you as a person who wants to be transformative to other people. Is that not accurate? Well, we all have a, a capacity to enable other people. And by what you do uh, with your podcast and so forth, you listen to people and you ask, what's your story? What do you know? Tell you know, that's very helpful in people feeling good about themselves. And you don't ask people who know, know, woe is me and life is awful and I just lost three legs, or one, two, two legs, hello. (laughs) How many legs do people have? Uh, And that capacity to transform, well, the the whole Menders of Destiny uh, series that I'm writing about right now is your capacity with saying very little. You're not making people's lives different you're helping them put their wheels back on their own tracks. And that, I think, is what great teaching is about. That's what great healing is about. Most of the doctors I know who are greatly admired, they aren't doctors, they are healers. 
and the healing is encouraging the other person to think of yourself as well and do the things that will make that happen. And you, you have that opportunity. It's not required, but you have that opportunity, and it's an opportunity not to miss. So the book that I loved was Third Wish. Is there a favorite one of, of yours uh, that you would also like to recommend? I will recommend Third Wish by you. Well, one of the problems with your audience is that the book has to be in English. Well, not necessarily, actually. Well, something, if you go to my web journal site, which if I put up every couple of weeks something I've written, there is a place where you can download in English, two books that have never been published in English, but you can download them if you will go to that much trouble and uh, staple them together or just loosely. But one is a novel written about tango dancing, but it's not about tango dancing. It's about looking at doors that you think are always closed to you and never trying the handle to see what's on the other side of the door. That's what it's really about. And the setting, descriptive, is about the, uh, what's the name of the... uh, Century Ballroom. Century Ballroom in in, uh, Seattle. And that book, plus a memoir, because I went to Buenos Aires to tango school, are both available in English. You just have to go to the effort of, they're free. I like both of those a lot because it seems like it's about tango dancing. And if you say to yourself, I'm not interested in tango dancing, it's not about tango dancing, about taking chances in life of seeing how large your life might be and being open to another culture, another way of seeing things, but putting your hand on the handle and opening the door at least to look what's on the other side. I would love it if people would download that. It's free. Uh, Download those two books and read them. They're beautifully illustrated. Great. And I'll put a link in the show notes so you guys can find that link. And thank you so much, Robert, for being on the show and also for inviting me to come down and join you for almost a week. Thank you for coming all the way down here. I, I haven't had any company for the last 18 months, and so it's really strange to be sitting in my house with someone else without a mask on. Hopefully I was a decent... Uh... <laughs> you were great. You were great company. You were great company. And this may not make your podcast, but it's really great to think I can say, Katie Sewell slept in my bed, you know. (laughs) I wasn't in it at the time, but nevertheless, not many people can say that. That's true. That's true, not many people. Very elite company. (laughs) The author is Robert Fulgham, my friend, and I highly recommend that you pick up any of his books to restart your thinking and imagination. Third Wish was published in an elite edition with illustrations and a CD and everything, Mm -hmm. the way I really wanted it. Amazon Excuse me. Amazon bought 20,000 copies of it, <clears throat> and there are still copies available, either a few new from people who bought a bunch of them or used, mm-hmm. but that's the only way you can get it in English. Excuse me. Smoke. Well, you can say we're looking out the window and you can hardly see the environment. Yes, the smoke is blowing in from California. Yeah, yeah. So anyhow, thank you for coming. Thank you for doing this. Anytime. Yeah, yeah. And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Talk to you next week. Bye. Do you have a topic you want us to explore? Send your requests. We'd love to hear what you want to know. Visit thebittersweetlife.net and contact us. With your questions, your adventures, your observations, your favorite episodes. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for The Bittersweet Life Podcast. (laughs) 